When we come upon the second half of Romans chapter 7, we unwittingly stumble into a theological debate that has been raging since the early days of the church. And the question is, who is the wretched man of Romans 7? The wretched man who cries out for deliverance from this body of death in verse 24. Who is the I who features so prominently in this passage? Is it Paul speaking autobiographically? Or is it Paul speaking typically as a paradigm for all mankind? Or is it both? And if it is autobiographical, does it refer to Paul as a believer in his present state or to Paul as an unbeliever at the time prior to his conversion, but viewed from the perspective now of his present faith? A conclusive answer to this question is elusive, and I think that's evident in the widely divergent opinions found within the history of the interpretation of the second half of Romans 7. Very early in the church, the the Greek fathers of the early church, Origen and folks who followed after him, were convinced that these verses described an unconverted, unbelieving person. In fact, it was not until Augustine at the turn of the 5th century that the view emerged that Paul was actually speaking of his own Christian experience. Augustine himself had actually held to the earlier view, but his his opinion changed as a result of his battle with Pelagius. And his later interpretation that, that Paul was speaking of himself as a Christian then convinced the entire Western Latin church. It was the dominant view of the reformers. It was the foundation of Luther's famous statement that the Christian is at the same time justified and yet a sinner. And it remains the dominant view today. I would venture to guess that most of you who have given thought to this passage have assumed that Paul is describing his present experience as a regenerate, converted, believing man. There are, however, a significant number of theologians and commentators today who hold to the opposing view that Paul is not speaking of his present converted state, but he must be referring to himself as he was when he was an unbeliever, when he was unregenerate. But does it really matter? I mean, isn't this just a debate for theologians and biblical scholars and, you know, bearded Calvinists who geek out over this sort of thing? Well, no. There's a lot at stake in how we answer this question. There's a lot at stake in how we answer the identity of the wretched man of Romans 7. If we say, without any qualification, that the wretched man of Romans 7 is Paul, as typical of every believer, then we give the impression, like it or not, that the normal state of the Christian life is one of defeat, despair, and bondage to sin, because that's the tone of this passage. And it creates a kind of approach to sin that says, I mean, if, if not even Paul could achieve victory over his indwelling sin, then what hope do I have? On the other hand, if we say, without any qualification, 
that the wretched man of Romans 7 is Paul in his unbelieving state. It's Paul as typical of the unbeliever apart from Christ. Then we give the impression that the kind of struggle that Paul describes here is not a part of the normal Christian experience. And therefore, if a professing Christian, a church member, feels like this, then they probably aren't really saved. They're probably not genuinely converted. Maybe it's just me, but I see tremendous pastoral implications at play in how we interpret this passage. For instance, do I tell the church member who confesses to me his or her struggle with pornography or alcohol or overspending or overeating or any other addiction that they probably aren't saved or else they wouldn't be struggling with this particular sin. In fact, they would be living in freedom. Is that the way I handle people who come to me with their sins? Or conversely, do I tell this person that there really isn't any hope in this life, not until the resurrection that is, and at any rate, they shouldn't worry about it anyway, because after all, the Apostle Paul struggled with sin too. Is that the way we should, we should approach the problem of sin within the church? We need to be careful with how we take this passage. So this morning, what I want to do is briefly summarize the arguments for each position evaluate those arguments, and then I'm going to offer my humble but most accurate opinion as to how we ought to approach and understand this passage. We're going to start with the arguments in favor of understanding the wretched man as Paul looking back upon his unregenerate state prior to his conversion. This is Paul speaking as an unbeliever. All right. There are more or less seven good reasons for understanding the passage this way, and I'm just going to roll through these really quick. Number one, Paul's description of himself, verse 14. By the way, throughout this message, you're going to have to have your Bibles open. You're just going to have to. I'm going to be referring all the way through this passage, jumping back and forth, and, and you just got to have Romans 7 open before you. So look at verse 14, where Paul describes himself as being of the flesh, sold under sin. That doesn't fit with Paul's emphatic declaration in Romans 6 that the baptized believer is no longer enslaved to sin. I mean, Paul says that in Romans 6, 6, 7, 17, and 18, and 20 to 22. That's the whole theme of Romans chapter 6. You are no longer a slave of sin if you are in Christ. You're no longer dead to sin. You're no longer one of those over whom sin has dominion, verse 14. So having studied Romans chapter 6, are we really to believe that Paul would then return to describing himself and all Christians as slaves of sin? Number two, Paul's statement that though he desires to do what is right, he lacks the ability to carry it out, verse 18 of Romans 7, Likewise, does not seem to fit the description of one who is free from the slavery of sin and has become a slave of righteousness, like he said in Romans 6, 18. Number three, Paul's statement that he is a captive of the law of sin, verse 23 of Romans 7, is inconsistent with Paul's description of the Christian in Romans 8, 2 as one who has been set free from the law of sin and death. 
Number four, the cry of despair in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Doesn't seem like the cry of a believer, but rather that of an unbeliever who has reached the end of himself and is only then able to reach out and embrace Christ as his deliverer, which in fact happens in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Number five. The strong connection throughout this passage between I and the flesh in verses 14, 18, and 25 fits better with the description of a man who is living in the flesh under the law, like Paul said in Romans 7, 5, rather than the man who has been set free from the law to serve in the new way of the Spirit, like Paul said in Romans 7, 6. Speaking of the Spirit, number six, there's no mention of him in these verses whatsoever, which would be odd for Paul, considering the fact that his entire theology of the Christian life is a theology of the Spirit. And then finally, number seven, the overall tone of defeat in verses 13 to 25 does not fit with the tone of chapter six or chapter eight with their triumphant note of victory over sin. Those arguments, I'm just going to tell you, those arguments are strong. And this position cannot be easily dismissed. You can't just swat it away and say, that doesn't make any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. I somehow, in my life, accumulated 16 commentaries on Romans. I have no idea how that happened. It just did. Of the 16... Only two argue for this view, but those two that do are probably the strongest commentaries I have. And that's not something that can be disregarded easily. I think we have to take this view, and I think we have to take it seriously and consider it seriously. Paul might be talking about the unbeliever in this passage. But those who argue for the position that Paul is speaking as a believer they offer persuasive arguments as well. There are more more or less five good reasons for understanding Paul to be talking of his Christian experience in these verses. Number one, while Paul was clearly describing his pre-conversion experience in verses 7 to 12, which we covered last week, right? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came, and I died Those verses in verses 7 to 12 are all in the past tense. But in verse 14, Paul switches rather dramatically, and from verse 14 to 25, he speaks in the present tense, which seems to indicate that he's moving from a past experience to a present experience. Number two. Paul's description of the unbeliever in verse or chapter 118 to 320 is radically different than his description here in 7.13 to 25. In in chapters 1 to 3, Paul describes the unbeliever as one who does not seek for God, Romans 3.11. But here he says, I desire what is right, verse 18. I want what is good, verse 19. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, verse 22. That doesn't sound like the man whose mind is set on the flesh who is hostile to God, Romans 8, 7. Number three, Paul's description of himself as someone who knows himself unable to keep the law 
as someone who considers himself wretched and enslaved in a body of death, doesn't seem to match his description of himself before he became a Christian. A description which we actually have in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, where Paul describes his religious pedigree and he boasts that as to the righteousness that is found in the law, I was blameless. This guy doesn't consider himself blameless. Number four, the conflict and tension expressed in this passage between the inner man, verse 22, and the flesh, verse 18, or the members in verse 22, is really reminiscent of what he will later describe as the inward groaning of believers as they eagerly await the adoption as sons and the redemption of their body at the return of Christ, Romans 8.23. And it was really reminiscent of the battle which exists in Galatians 5 in the believer between the flesh and the spirit. And then number 5, look at verse 25. Look at the second half. So then I myself serve the law of God with my sin, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That seems really out of place coming after the first half of verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who gives us the deliverance. If in fact the first half of verse 25 describes the unbelievers coming to faith in Christ as the position claims which views Paul as speaking of an unbeliever. So those are strong arguments as well. And this position that Paul is speaking of the regenerate converted man is the dominant majority position for reformed Protestants, and it is so for a reason. Of those 16 commentaries of Romans in my office, 13 of them propose this interpretation. And for what it's worth, I think this argument is a little stronger than the first one. I lean in this direction. I think this one's right. But I think we ought to acknowledge that both sides have strong arguments and both sides have good rebuttals for each other's arguments. As I said, you can't easily swat away this passage and say, well, I know exactly what this means. I was kidding earlier when I said that. I, don't, I hope I'm right. <laughs> I think I'm right. If I thought I was wrong, I would think in the other way. But I'm not absolutely certain. But there's a third view that I want to mention. Because I find it intriguing as a possible middle way between these previous two alternatives. And this is the view of, of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, was a pastor in London and a theologian in London in the middle of the last century. And he says... Quote, without difficulty or hesitation, end quote, though he's absolutely sure, that the wretched man of Romans 7 cannot possibly be an unregenerate man because he delights in the law of God. Neither, however, can he be fully regenerate because such a man could never be called a slave of sin and his experience is incompatible with New Testament Christianity. So Lloyd-Jones suggests a third option, which is that the wretched man is what he calls an awakened sinner, or what I'm going to call a pre-converted man. Now, awakened is a Puritan word. It's a Puritan category. If you were with me through our study of Pilgrim's Progress, you're now familiar with the term awakened. And Lloyd-Jones was tremendously fond of the Puritans. And it describes the state of a sinner 
whose conscience has been awakened to the reality of God and to the gravity of sin, but he's not yet found his hope and his peace in the grace of the gospel. He's in the process of conversion. He's under intense conviction of sin such that he feels himself utterly condemned, but not yet having grasped the gospel He instead tries to remedy his own situation and assuage his own guilt by keeping the law only to find that he can't. He's not able. It's not in his power. He's in the throes of conversion, but it will only be at the end of his conversion travail that he finds his rescue in Christ Jesus crucified and risen, that is, in the gospel. Until then, Lloyd-Jones, it's as if, those are important words, it's as if he were neither unregenerate nor regenerate. Now, Lloyd-Jones is not saying that there is some middle ground between dead in sin and alive in Christ. That's not true. There is no such middle ground. What he's saying is, that there is a point in the process of conversion in which it's not entirely clear which side you're on. And it won't be clear until, to use Bunyan's terminology, you stand at the foot of the cross and the burden falls from your back, rolls down the hill, is never seen again. In fact, Lloyd-Jones even references Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, in which Bunyan, having been awakened to the reality of God and the gravity of his sin, tried for a couple of years to remove the guilt of his sin by religious works, by moral reformation. He came to understood that he was a sinner, and in order to attack that sin, because he didn't yet know the gospel, he said, I'm just going to redouble my religious efforts. I'm going to be in church every Sunday, morning and night, every Wednesday night. I'm going to be there all of the time. I'm going to keep all of the law. I'm going to do all the Christian things. That's how I'm going to handle my guilt. Kind of like... Paul sounds to be doing, sounds like he's doing in Romans 7. Bunyan allegorized that episode in his life in Pilgrim's Progress in that time when which Christian, having been awakened to his plight, flees from the city of destruction, but he gets sidetracked when he tries to reach a Mr. Legality who dwells in the town of Morality, a man who he's heard is skilled in the removal of burdens. But he finds that it doesn't work because legality and lives in the town of morality, and morality is up at the top of Sinai. And, and the higher on Sinai, button in try, Christian rather, tries to climb, the, the further away it gets and the steeper it gets until eventually he falls off the mountain and he's there in a puddle of weeping tears in absolute despair until evangelist comes and puts him back on the path towards the wicked gate and the cross, where eventually he loses his burden of sin for good. Lloyd-Jones says that's a picture of what Paul's describing. Now, I, I think this view takes seriously both the language of slavery and despair that marks this passage. I want to do good, but I can't. As well as the language which points to a renewed heart which actually delights in the law of God. And I think it fits well with the context of verses 7 to 12. But whether it's what Paul had in mind, we cannot know for sure. So that's an introduction to the various views. Let me kind of summarize 
what I think. I'm fairly certain that Paul meant either to describe the Christian experience or the conversion experience. I'm pretty sure that he's not describing the unbeliever's experience. So I reject the first option. I'm intrigued by the third option. And I stand in the second option. And I would suggest that you do as well. That's the way I'm going to approach this text today. And now that we've got that established, let's walk through this text, which shouldn't take us too long because it's rather repetitive. Uh, I see in these verses three truths about the so-called wretched man of Romans 7. First, I want to show you the agonizing despair of the wretched man. All right, it's possible to read these verses in sort of a cold, detached, clinical way, but that would be a tragic mistake because the culmination of this passage comes in verse 24, which cannot be read in anything but a note of agonized despair. Wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? That is the cry of a man who's come to the end of himself. So what has brought Paul to this point of raw emotion? Well, verses 13 to 23. So these verses are not Paul describing his own moral inability with with a tone of detached coolness. These are verses in which Paul is crying out from the depths of his heart with a growing frustration and despair over his inability to keep the law in which he delights. He's kind of like a paraplegic who wants with everything in him to stand up and run, but his legs just won't listen to his mind. So we need to read this passage in light of verse 24. It's that kind of frustrated despair which underlies each of these verses. We can break these verses into three sections. The first, verse 13, is the bridge between the previous passage, verse 7 to 12, and this passage. And it establishes that there is a principle at work within me, namely sin, and this Sin turns what is good, the law, into something bad, death. The second part of these verses, verses 14 to 20, then makes three claims which unpack that principle laid down in verse 13. Then the third section, verses 21 to 23, bring Paul's argument to a conclusion and they culminate in that cry of despair in verse 24. So let's look briefly at each section. First, verse 13. Paul establishes that the problem is not the law. The problem, rather, is the sin which indwells us and dominates us. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. Now this verse essentially restates the same objection that Paul raised in verse 7, namely that what Paul has been saying is that the law is the cause of death for sinners, that the problem is the law. And Paul once again says in the strongest of terms, God forbid, that is not what I'm saying. The problem is not with the law. 
It is not the law which kills. It is sin in me which uses the law to produce death. Okay, the law is the blunt instrument with which our sin bludgeons us to death. When a murderer is executed under the law, it is not technically the law which puts him to death. The law against murder is good. It is intended to preserve life. Rather, it's the man's sin, it's his own crime, which activates the law's penalty and through the law kills him. Sin is the actor. Well, likewise, it's, it's technically not the law of God that places us under the wrath and condemnation of God leading to death. The law is good. It is meant to lead to holiness and eternal life. Rather, it is our indwelling sin which activates the law's curse and through the law brings us under wrath which then leads to eternal death. But then, lest we think that somehow sin has gained the upper hand on God, that somehow sin is now determinative in in the, the fate of the universe, Paul now points out that this whole process of sin, using the law, leading to death, serves God's good and holy design. See, apart from the law, sin would still exist. But because of the law, sin is revealed to be what it actually is. Evil, deadly rebellion against the living God. We wouldn't know that if it weren't for the law. We would still be sinners, but we wouldn't know how sinful we actually are. Until the law comes forth and turns our latent sin, which is still deadly though unnoticed, It turns that latent sin into active transgression. It draws our sin out into the open that it may be dealt with through atonement and repentance. So the good and holy law shows us to be what we truly are. Paul says, sinful beyond measure. You can't even measure. There is not a ruler long enough to measure how wicked we actually are, says Paul. Verses 14 to 20 then make three claims about the relationship of God's holy law to my own sinful nature. Okay, how do these, how how do I relate to the law with the indwelling sin still within me? He makes these claims in verses 14 to 17, then he essentially repeats them again in verses 18 to 20. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So here's the first claim Paul makes. He says that there is an essential, that is in the essence of things, there is an essential antagonism between the law and my sinful nature. The two just don't get along. The law, he says, is spiritual. That is, it comes from the Holy Spirit, and therefore it accords with goodness and holiness. I, on the other hand, am of the flesh, sold under sin. 
That is, I have a nature that is not of the Holy Spirit, that does not accord with goodness and holiness, but rather accords with weakness and sin. Okay, so based upon our introductory work, when we work through those three views, I contend that this can apply either to the pre-converted man who is under conviction, the, the man who is undergoing conversion, or, and probably primarily, refers to the one who has been converted and now knows fully the extent of his sin. If it, if it applies to the pre-converted man under conviction, that was, that was position number three, then what it's describing is a man who finds that there is an unbridgeable chasm between his own sinful self and the holiness of God prescribed by the law. If it applies to the believer, to the converted man, then what it's saying is that there is still, even in my converted state, there is still an unbridgeable gap between what I presently am and what I desire to be and one day will be. There's still a gap. And it's the unbridgeable character of this gap that produces Paul's language of slavery, sold under sin. Now, even though Paul has earlier, in the second half of Romans 6, said that a believer is set free from his slavery to sin. He's no longer a slave of sin in the sense of being totally dominated without hope by the power of sin. Yet in Romans chapter 7, he's saying that there is a sense in which even the believer cannot be yet what he really wants to be. And that gap, that inability to be what I want to be, Paul is willing to call a kind of slavery. It's not the same kind of slavery. It's not the same degree of slavery as that to which we were oppressed in our unconverted state. Slavery to sin does not characterize the entire life of the believer like it characterized the entire life of the unconverted man, but it is enough to make him profoundly dissatisfied with his present condition. It still feels like slavery. I still feel like I'm enslaved to my sinful nature because try as I might to be holy, I just never get there. That's the first claim he makes. The second claim, Paul says there is a frustrating incongruity between what I want to be and what I am. At his deepest identity, Paul wants to be holy. He wants to keep the law. That is, he wants to love God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, and he wants to love his neighbor as himself. He says he agrees with the law. He agrees that it is beautiful, that it's good. He hates, he says, the things that he does. And he doesn't even understand his own actions. That is, he doesn't approve of them. You can hear the frustration in Paul's voice, and it's a frustration that is experienced by every believer. You know it too if you're in Christ. 
It's a frustration most often experienced in retrospect when we were looking back over the sins that we committed that day or in the last week, and we ask ourselves, why, why did I respond in that way? Why did I lose my temper? Why did I say that? Why did I lose my patience? Why did I not exercise self-control? That's not me. That's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. So while the language of verse 14, being of the flesh and sold under sin, leads some interpreters to say, well, Paul must be referring to his unconverted experience because Paul said that the believer is no longer under sin in Romans 6. I just can't get past the language of verses 15 and 16. I can't get past the frustration which Paul is expressing because I know that frustration. What unbeliever could say, I want holiness. I love the law. I hate my sin. The third claim Paul makes is that there is a kind of schizophrenic dissociation. I'm using psychological terms here. There's a kind of schizophrenic dissociation between my renewed self and my old fallen self. Key word, there's a kind of. And Paul says it's the latter, it's the old self who is responsible for my sin. Now, I want to pause here and I want to, I want to exercise great caution. I'm not suggesting, and I don't think Paul's suggesting, that our bodies are somehow possessed by an alien sin nature such that we commit acts of evil against our wills. That's not how we sin, and you know it. When you sin, you don't sin against your will. Sin acts through your will to get you to do what you ought not do. So I would repudiate any tendency which separates our spiritual self from our fleshly self. This is, this is a way of understanding this passage that is out there. I used to think this. I think this was actually taught, possibly, uh, when I was growing up. I heard Romans 7 explained in this way, that when you sin, it's not really you. Mm, it's you, and that's the problem. You can't make some sort of Gnostic division which says, my body's bad, my soul's good, and therefore anything my body does isn't, isn't a problem with my soul. You can see where that has and does lead to all manner of immorality. That's not what Paul's teaching here. You are an integrated being. Your body and your soul are so woven together, you cannot disassociate them. Furthermore, your soul is not as good as you think it is. It's not yet glorified. Your willing is not yet perfected. You are not yet holy and pure. Everything you will and everything you want is tainted by sin and selfishness. So your soul is complicit with what your body does. You sin as a whole being, and you are responsible for that. Is that clear? Nevertheless, Paul does affirm here and elsewhere that the Christian possesses a renewed and holy nature that is at war with his old evil nature. 
And that renewed nature is the abode of the Holy Spirit. And there is a battle between the flesh, the old nature, and the spirit, the new nature, which characterizes the Christian life. That's why I say it's like, but not exactly like, a person with multiple personalities. Kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of thing. In verse 17, Paul seems to be willing to separate the new self from the old self just enough to blame the old self for the wickedness which the whole self commits so that sin does not defile nor define nor destroy the identity of the new man. Therefore, a believer in the midst of the battle between the flesh and the spirit who falls into sin can truthfully say, that's not me. I don't want this. I'm not going to be defined by this sin while at the same time accepting responsibility for what he as a whole being has done. In verses 18 to 20, Paul then essentially restates those three claims. Watch how this plays out. As regards the first claim, Paul reiterates in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Remember in verse 14, Paul had said that the law is spiritual, but he is of the flesh sold under sin. Okay, You see that same kind of antagonism here in verse 18, right? Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. It's bad. The law is spiritual. It's good. So there's an essential antagonism between the law and my sin nature in verse 18. As regards the second claim, in the second half of verse 18 and verse 19, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You hear the same frustration coming out there as you heard in verse 15 when Paul said, I don't even understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I hate doing. Okay? He's frustrated by his inability to be what he so desperately wants to be, namely, holy. And then as regards the third claim, Paul again points to this dissociation between his true self and the sin that dwells in him. Now I do what I, now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See, he's, he's dissociating himself from the sin without denying responsibility. So to the converted man who loves the good, who delights in God's law, sin appears like an alien intruder. It is an unwelcome occupying force. We do not willingly nor gladly live under its oppressive regime. Instead, we rebel, we overthrow, we conquer, we fight tooth and nail until we drive it out and win. Verses 21 to 23 then carry on the same theme. They bring the argument to a, to a summation with what Paul calls a law. Okay? I, I see a law demonstrated in my life. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You know what Paul's doing here? He's putting on his 
his scientist robe. And he's formulating a law on the basis of observable phenomenon. He, he's postulating a law to describe what he observes. He says, I find going on within him. Okay? He's not actually going to tell us what this law is until the second half of verse 25. Rather, what he's doing in these verses is describing the phenomena that he's observing. He says, here's what I, here's what I see when I, when I put the, the magnifying glass up to my life. I see a man who wants to do right. Yet evil is always lurking close at hand. And he cannot escape it totally. Evil is always there. It's always subverting his best attempts. It's always mixing in with his best motives. It's always undermining his pursuit of holiness. And then in verses 22 to 23, Paul puts his heart under the microscope, so to speak, and he finds the inner man delights in God's law. But then when he sort of turns the scope out and looks at the whole body, he finds another law. That is another ruling desire, waging war against the law of his mind, the law of his heart, and it brings him in captivity to the law of sin. Paul is describing in these verses the reason why he's so frustrated in verses 14 to 20. He's so frustrated because there is a war raging inside of him. It's a war between two competing desires, two opposing forces. On the one hand, he says, my heart is captive to the law of God and it desires to do the good. On the other hand, my members, my sin nature, my body is captive to the law of sin and it desires to do evil. And he finds his true self kind of caught in the crossfire. He desperately wants the law of God to, to win out over the law of sin, but the forces of evil at work in his members are so strong. When will this battle end? When will he finally be able to be free to do what he wants to do and to be who he wants to be? That's the agonizing despair that comes erupting out of his mouth at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He feels wretched about himself. That's a very strong word. But it's the only word to describe your state when you really unpeel the motivations of your heart and you find out how weak and sinful you really are. This is the cry of a person who's reached the end of himself, one who's at the end of his rope, one who is in such distress and travail, he feels as if he's going to break. Is there any deliverance? Is there any hope for the wretched man? And yes, indeed, there is. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now this is important. You may wonder, why does Paul do this again? Why does he bring us again to the point of despair and then rescue us again with the good news of Jesus Christ? He's already done that. He did that back in Romans chapter 3. You remember when he put all of us, every one of us, Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, every one of us he put under the sin and wrath of God, under sin and under the wrath of God. He told us none of us is righteous. All of us are turned aside. There's no hope in any one of us in the works of the law. We despaired at Romans 3.20. But then he came in and he said, but now, 
apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested. And he rescued us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He told us that apart from the law, God justifies the ungodly freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord to be received by faith. So we've already been down to the depths of despair. He's already rescued us with the gospel. Why does he do it again? Is he being repetitive? No. The rescue and redemption that he declares in Romans 7 is different than the rescue and redemption that he declared in Romans 3. The redemption of which he spoke in those earlier chapters was a redemption from the wrath of God. It was a freedom from sin's penalty. The redemption of which he speaks now at the end of Romans 7 is freedom from the bondage of our flesh, our sinful nature, the law of sin at work in our members, and it's freedom from sin's power. The redemption of which Paul spoke in those earlier chapters looked back to the cross of Christ where sin was once for all atoned for through the, through the propitiatory death of Christ on the cross when he satisfied the wrath of God and the demands of the law in our place. The redemption which Paul speaks about now at the end of Romans 7 looks ahead to the day when Christ will raise our mortal sinful bodies from the grave and will glorify them with himself. The body of death from which Paul wants to be delivered is our body that belongs to this age. We exist in this age enslaved, as it were, in our mortal bodies, what Paul calls this body of death. But the day will come, he assures us, when we will shed this body of death like a butterfly sheds its cocoon. For we know, he's going to say in Romans chapter 8, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Pause. That's exactly what Paul's doing in Romans 7. He's groaning inwardly. For what? As we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul knows he's justified. He knows he's free from sin's penalty through the atoning death of Christ. What he wants in Romans 7 is to be sanctified and glorified. He wants to be made holy. He wants to be free from sin's power and free from sin's presence. He wants the law in his mind and in his inner being to coincide with the law in his members. He wants his renewed heart to be united in a renewed body in order that he may serve God with his whole being, body and and soul in a renewed creation. He wants no more war, no more battle against lust, no more battle against greed, no more battle against pride, no more battle against gluttony, no more battles against depression or anxiety, no more battles against anger and his temper and his loss of patience, he, no more battle against that tongue that's like a raging fire and cannot be tamed. He's tired of all of that, and he's looking for the day when Christ is going to come and rescue him from this daily battle. And on that day, which is the fullness of the redemption for which he hopes, he will appear before his God and Savior, blameless with great joy, finally the glorious creature which God created and redeemed him to be. That's what he's looking for. But he doesn't end Romans 7 there, does he? Because that day is not yet. 
you and I live in the second half of verse 25. So then I find in myself that I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That is the law that governs our daily existence in this age. And this is the daily battle of the wretched yet justified man. With your renewed mind, you serve the law of God. That is, you desire holiness. You want to be godly. But with your flesh, that is, your indwelling sin nature, you still find yourself serving the law of sin. And you will fight this battle between your new, true, redeemed, renewed self and your old, unfallen, unredeemed self until the day you die. But you will win. And by the Spirit in this life, you will continue day by day to put to death the deeds of the flesh in order that you may live, Romans 8.13. Now, I know that this has been a long technical sermon. It's because it's a long and technical text. But what Paul has to say in this passage is absolutely critical to your understanding of the ordinary Christian life. What's it like to live the Christian life? It's frustrating. And hopeful. So let me summarize this morning. I'm going to give you seven bullet points that I want you to take away from the last 45 minutes. Okay? If you just woke up, now's a great time. Here you go. Number one, if you are born again, your life consists in constant warfare between your renewed self, which delights in the law of God, and your old fallen self, which is still bent towards sin. Number two, you will not win this war by your own efforts, for though you have the desire to be holy, you do not have the ability in yourself to carry that out. Number three, therefore, deliverance from your sin nature and the law of sin must come from outside of you. You must look outside of yourself, outside of your own efforts, outside of your own strength. You must look to God through Jesus Christ our Lord for deliverance and rescue. Number four, Jesus Christ has rescued you from the penalty of sin through his atoning death such that, very next verse, there is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number five, Jesus Christ is now rescuing you from the power of sin through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who now enables you to put to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans 8.13, and to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, verse 4 of Romans chapter 8. Number six, Jesus Christ will one day rescue you from the presence of sin on that day when you receive the redemption of your bodies in the resurrection. And number seven, if you are not engaged in the war against sin, you are not born again. The Holy Spirit does not dwell within you, Romans 8, 9, you do not belong to Christ. What do you do? You do Romans 6, 3, and 4. You die to sin and be raised with Christ through faith, which is signified and sealed in baptism. So to all of us, in the heat of battle, who feel ourselves wretched, we read Romans chapter 7 and we say, yep, that's me. 
and we feel ourselves in need of divine deliverance, I'm going to leave you with the promise of Christ. One day, soon, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption draws near, says Jesus. So keep fighting. He's coming soon, and he's bringing your victory with him.